Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, we're going to be talking to somebody I've been friends with uh, for quite a few years now. I actually met her uh, the year her book, uh, Abandoned, the Untold uh, Story of the Abortion Wars, came out. And that is uh, Dr. Monica Miller. She's a, a nationally known American pro-life leader. She's the founder and director of Citizens for a Pro-Life Society. And she's been active in the movement since 1976. She's also a professor of theology at Madonna University in Livonia. She's written several books, actually. Abandoned, I think, is a, is a must-read for anybody who's interested in the history of the pro-life movement. And she's actually taken incredible photographs of aborted babies. Some of these photographs were actually featured in the New York Times. She's done pretty much every version of pro-life activism that there is, uh, from civil disobedience and sit-downs and serving uh, time in jail as a result of that, displaying the victims of abortion in public to show to people what actually is taking place behind closed doors, uh, doing sidewalk counseling where she actually uh, invented or at least defined what is now known as the Chicago method of reaching out to women on the streets. And she also put out a, a book of, of abortion victim photography, which incidentally is a term that she coined, that has uh, pictures of babies who have been aborted paired with reflections by different pro-life leaders who had to spend uh, time with those photographs, really reflecting on them, I was privileged to be asked to write one of those uh, testimonies. David Delayden, Jill Stanick, Joe Scheidler, Abby Johnson, many other pro-life leaders uh, also contributed to this uh, book of heartbreaking photographs. So I wanted to talk to Dr. Monica Miller today about uh, her life in pro-life activism, uh, what it's like to, to join the pro-life movement and stay full-time and why she made that decision, and what it's like to come face-to-face -face with the victims of abortion. So without further introduction, here is that conversation with Dr. Monica Miller. So, Dr. Miller, how did you first get involved in the pro-life movement uh, way back in the 1970s? Well, yes. I was actually uh, just graduated from Southern Illinois University. Um, I was 23, just 23 years old. So um, I was pretty young, and I had uh, just gotten my degree in uh, theater. People don't know that I have an actual theater background. <laughs> I didn't know that. Right. Well, well, yeah. It's in my it's in my book. I think I talk about it briefly. Um, in the beginning of my of my book, uh, abandoned the untold story of the abortion wars. Um, and what happened is, well, I, well, actually, when I was 21 years old, so again, you know, quite young, I had a very profound religious conversions and really started to take my Catholic faith very seriously, uh, though I never had any doubts about the faith. But, you know, let me just say that going off to college and then, um, to make matters worse, uh, to major in theater um, was not, not exactly the most, um, uh, in, you know, encouraging environment for the practice of the faith. Right. <laughs> so... Um, anyway, I went on a retreat during Holy Week uh, in 1976 at the Newman Center, 
at Southern Illinois University, and I met a woman there named Shirley Parks. And there was probably about 20, 20 people on the retreat at the Newman Center, and she was she was one of those one of the people on the retreat. And so we were going around the room, introducing ourselves, and you know, giving a little bit of a short bio of who we were and what we were up to, and so on. And Shirley um, was involved in something called the pro-life movement. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, so I had absolutely no idea what that was. You know, it, it, it sounded exotic. You know, the pro-life movement, and um, so of course it turns out that she was involved in, you know, ending ending abortion. Now, Roe versus Wade was only three years old, um, decided in 1973. So this was not that long after Roe v. Wade. So I um, <clears throat> became friends with with Shirley, and she mentored me uh, for a number of months. Took me to meetings, gave me good books to read. Um, and that was really my 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 uh, initiation uh, into the movement, um, and uh, not not too long after that, I I moved from Carbondale, Illinois, where I was living, of course, and I uh, I moved moved to Chicago uh, to study theology. I gave up theater. Um, I really did a complete 180, but in any case, I I. Uh, attended Loyola University in Chicago, and I uh, met Joe Scheidler um, of the Pro-Life Action League. I know you've done an interview with Joe. Yes, yeah. Um, so at that time, I was about, at that time, maybe 24, 24 years old. Joe was in his early 50s at that time. He's, he's now 90, 91 or 92 years old, so... Um, I've known him for a very, very, very long time. Um, but in any case, uh, I got involved in sidewalk counseling pretty quickly, spent a lot of time outside of Chicago abortion clinics, um, talking women out of abortions. And uh, then I, uh, well, here's the thing, the way I met Joe, actually, um, I attended a parish um, St. Ignatius Parish run by the Jesuits back then uh, that was close to the campus of uh, Loyola on the north, far north side of Chicago. And uh, again, another woman, Marcita Hecht, um, who was a faithful, faithful member of that parish, invited me to go to a meeting. And uh, she said, yeah, some pro-life meeting in downtown Chicago. I said, okay, fine. So we get on the L train and we zoom down to uh, to the loop and we uh, we go to the offices of the Illinois Right to Life Committee and Joe at that time was the executive director of Illinois Right to Life and lo and behold the meeting was to plan a sit-in at a uh, Chicago abortion clinic the clinic was called Concord Medical Services um on Grant Street uh in uh near the near the near uh near the loop um and uh i decided i'm in i you know when time came to raise raise our hands so who's willing to risk arrest i my my hand is shot right up because i figure well i have no what excuses do i have um not married i have no children and i'm a just a graduate student you know um at loyola so we did that first 
sit in, and we didn't even call them rescues yet, um, in uh, March 11th of 1978. And so I, that was my uh, first time that I met Joe was at that planning uh, meeting um, in uh, early uh, 1978. And I was 24 years old at the time. And so my first uh, arrest for trying to defend uh, unborn babies from abortion um, was when I was 24. And I, and again, I talk about that, that sit-in, uh, rescue, uh, in, in my book, Abandoned, the, the Untold Story of the Abortion Wars. Um, so that's pretty much, uh, you know, how I got involved. I, I started my own pro-life organization while I was still a graduate student at Loyola in, um, no, actually, by then, by then I was actually, I had already graduated. I was teaching at, um, a Catholic high school in Chicago, right. and I founded Citizens for a Pro-Life Society um, before I went to Milwaukee to, to get my Ph.D. at Marquette, So I'm, and I've been running uh, Citizens for a Pro-Life Society ever since then. So that kind of gives us a chronology, but when I think of, of why you got involved in the pro-life movement, uh, it's been a couple of years since I read your book cover to cover, but the one scene, and there's a lot of really searing scenes throughout your book, and, and the way you weave literary quotes through the book, too, I think is quite masterful in terms of, of maximizing the impact. But the one scene that always really sticks out to me, because... This was my experience, and I think it's the experience of most people who end up working in the pro-life movement full-time, is the scene when uh, you're leaning into your refrigerator, your hand yeah. is on a carton of milk, and you suddenly realize that in a country where babies are being killed down the street, where real human beings are being dismembered and pulled apart, that we don't have any right to a normal life. And that's that's yeah. one that's really struck me, the idea that the babies have a right to life, but do we have a right to a normal life in a country that does not recognize that? Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up because um, there are other people who have read my book, uh, Jonathan, who have, have uh, you know, told me that that particular, those few paragraphs where I talk about that also impacted them. I, Jill Stanick, for example... Um, some people might know uh, who, who she is, but Jill Jill Stanick also commented that that I that I kind of um, characterized and or described or got to the heart of um, you know what it means to really be involved in in uh, the fight, the struggle, um, the work uh, to um, confront abortion and to and to end abortion. This sense that you can't live a normal life anymore. Mm -hmm. um, we're 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 in an emergency mode, and your your life is completely impacted by the the realization that you know down the street from where you live, or or you know with with within a half an hour's car drive or whatever, some there's a building, there's actually a place where moms and dads. Uh, walk in and and um, execute, destroy uh, innocent human life, and they do it with the sanction and the protection of law. And and I felt very very keenly that I I couldn't just live a normal life. That that the 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 expected things, you know, 
that a young woman, you know, would be would be involved with, you know, uh, you know, getting married and having children and finding a house to live in and getting an education and having a career. None of that mattered uh, uh, much uh, to me uh, in that in that moment. It really was it really was a moment where I kind of just froze in midair, um, preparing lunch. Right? I mean, I was that's what I was doing. I had, and I had just come back from uh, a couple of hours at a, at an abortion clinic, um, and uh, so that I, that sense that I had to be seized by a radical act. I had to do something. Um, that was out of the ordinary uh, in order to um, stop abortion, save lives, uh, make an issue out of it. And and I think I even talk about how I felt <clears throat> alienated from my own my own culture, my own even the country, uh, the United States of America, where slogans like "Land of the Free" and "Home of the Brave" they, none of that. To me, it was just lies. It didn't. It, there was no truth to it. Um, that I could feel a, a certain alienation um, from the very country where I lived that allowed this kind of um, atrocity, this 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 um, incredible injustice, to take place um, and call it a right. You know, the the constitutional right to abortion. So. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I appreciate that you that you brought that up, and I, I think it, and it really should, I think, be in some ways the, the way that that pro-lifers do feel that we mm-hmm. have to, we we you know we we have to be disturbed. Abortion has to disturb us, mm-hmm. and uh, cause us to do things that we wouldn't normally do, to take risks, um, to go way beyond our comfort zones. Um, uh, to be different, to be very different, um, and uh, and so I guess I, that's one of the things I, d- I definitely uh, talk about in my book, right? Yeah, yeah. Jill Stanick, for for the listeners who don't know, is uh, she works for the Susan B. Anthony List, and she's a longtime pro life activist as well. One of the things I wanted to ask you because you don't touch on it a lot in your book. Um, and uh, I asked uh, Joe and so several other people this question as well. We really want on this podcast to introduce people to the pro-life movement as it is and to help them understand what sort of sacrifices pro-life activists often have uh, to commit to and, and how their lives look as a result. And so after this realization that you could not live a normal life, setting aside your your activism for a moment, because we're going to get to that, how has being a pro-life activist changed your life in terms of getting married, having a family, your career? Um, because, yeah, we, we, we're going to get to the arrests and, and especially your photography. Um, but how has this just changed your life, especially as you would have seen it before that moment? Well, you you know, I don't know quite how to answer the question except to, to maybe say that, you know, to be involved in pro-life work, um, you, in a way, you literally wake up with it on your mind, and you go to bed with it on your mind. Um, you're you're always in tuned to um, what's what's happening, what other people are doing, initiatives that are taking place, whether it's it's uh, legislation or um, problems that are 
that are uh, happening at at certain abortion clinics with um you know violations of uh of uh health codes and so on and you know even even the the sidewalk counseling um you know when you talk a woman out of an abortion you, you know we get accused how ridiculous but you know we get accused of just caring about uh you know the uh talk the woman out of the abortion and then say goodbye you know have a nice life uh it's not like that at all i am i mean we we are involved in the in the uh the lives of these women for for months if not literally years even after the baby is born so there's a lot of work um your your life is really taken up with attending to if you're doing sidewalk counseling for example and i've done thousands and thousands of hours of sidewalk counseling in fact just this past good friday uh, a couple of days ago i was uh out, outside of a, an abortion clinic for two and a half hours in detroit uh michigan not too far from where i live um so if you talk if you talk the woman out of an abortion you're going to be involved in helping her financially uh, con- you know c- uh, giving her advice counseling maybe intervening between her and her family uh dealing with the boyfriend so it it it's uh it really consumes you pro pro life work uh, consumes you and it and it and it changes your life for for that for that reason and for no other reason and so when you were going out and doing this activism, was there sort of discussions in your family about how that was going to look for you? Because you've done <laughs> you've done every kind of activism there is. Uh, you've done right. civil disobedience at a time when, well, the, the beginning of the civil disobedience, is, is it had not yet died out as a civil rights practice uh, for African-Americans fighting for their rights. Um, you've 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 been through dumpsters, which is one of the things that we'll be discussing here in a moment. Um and and it, as you just mentioned, thousands of hours of sidewalk counseling, and so one of the things that many pro-life uh, full-time activists have ha- have had to um, really grapple with is how do you explain this to people who don't understand uh, that your life can't be normal? We had Scott Klusendorf on a couple of weeks back, and he he said that people uh, don't join the pro-life movement, and in some ways, each person there has been summoned into it. But that might be hard for other people who aren't in the pro-life movement, but even share pro-life convictions to understand. Well, yeah, I, it's wow, it's a hard question to answer in some ways, Jonathan. I, I, I don't. I can only speak from my own experience. I, I just realized, and I think this makes the difference for a lot of people. Abortion is an issue. And even if they're for, let's say, for religious reasons, uh, as well as maybe just plain old philosophical reasons, you're opposed, you know, people are opposed to abortion. Uh, they don't like it. They know there's something wrong with it. Um, they would support laws that, um, reversed abortion. Um, but if, as long as it's simply an issue, uh, among a lot of other issues, uh, political and social and cultural, uh, they will stay on the periphery. Um, and they w- and I think what the difference is, um, for the, for the, for somebody who's, who is going to shift from, um, simply opposing abortion or being against it in their own, um, 
let's say, their own personal value system. I think the the difference is that when you really when you really um, uh, understand in the deepest in the deepest part of yourself that abortion destroys other persons and that these other persons are real and they are they are the, you know the unborn child is a, is a personal someone um, uh, and they they are exterminated at the rate in the United States anyway of about 3,000 a day um, and you have to have that personal connection um, and, it, and then and then you can't and then you can't just uh, go and live your not go on and live your life you, you have to do something you got to join a group you got to work at a pregnancy health center you got to go on the pickets um, start a pro-life group at your church uh, whatever it's going to be, a, a lobby for legislation, work for pro-life candidates, because the, the loss, the, the true loss of life is um, you, you really, you, you really taking it in. The the uh, killing becomes very real to you, and once once that happens, um, things are going to be very different. Um, uh, in terms of your own life and the way that you you um, uh, allow abortion to impact you personally, I think that's that is quite is is, is in many ways that's really the difference. You know, it's kind of um, you know again I you know, we talk about my book, but the um, you know when I was in jail, I, I served a, a seven month uh, jail term. Um, in Milwaukee for a rescue that I did back in 1980, 1989. And I, um, I, I was, uh, I was allowed, I don't know how I got away with it exactly. Um, but I was allowed to, um, take photos, uh, into the jail. Uh, well, maybe cause it was a Huber jail. So in other words, I got, I got out on childcare. I had two small children at the time. Um, and, uh, I um, was allowed to take the photos of uh, abortion victims into the uh, into the jail uh, with me, and a lot of times the inmates wanted to see the photos, and and my fellow inmates would come up come up to me and and want to uh, say, "Hey, Miller, uh, you got those abortion photos? We want to take a look at them." And so I would I would pull them out and. Um, so I remember one time I was sitting on the floor with about maybe five or six of these inmates in a circle, and they were looking at the at the photos, handing them uh, one, one to the other. And um, I, I actually maybe I could read this from from my from my book. I remember one inmate; her name was Camille, and she looked at one of these one of the photos, and I saw this expression come across her face, and I knew exactly how she felt. There was a certain depth of realization, like like some some veil had been torn away, and the and the atrocity of abortion gets exposed to your mind and your heart and your soul in a way that you never understood it before. With the with the with the 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 the, the, the broken body um, right in front of her in that photograph, and and I say in my my book, um, the graphic images of the broken body shocked her. 
into new depths of reality and emotion. Her feelings were frozen by the tragedy the broken, twisted bodies caused her to penetrate. I knew this feeling. Many years ago, when I first saw the photos of aborted babies in the life or death brochure, I went into a kind of shock. My emotions were frozen as I was utterly unprepared for the horror and sorrow that the crushed bodies revealed to me. It is the reaction of that last pure part of the soul confronted by the desecration of the holy, a desecration beyond one, beyond what one can imagine. Yet, these unspeakable, unimaginable crimes took place and continue to take place. They are part of a terrible truth, as if a veil had been torn away to expose a glimpse of hell. The sight makes us tremble and weep, and the shock solidifies within us a great absolute no, as we refuse to be part of this terrible darkness. Our being is filled with resolve to stand against it. Nothing in this glimpse of hell can be right, and the e evil of it all is incarnated in the broken bodies that cry to you for justice. Once you see the bodies with the right mind, you can never go back. They have taken you into their world. And I think that's the experience that you have to have in some, on some level um, where once once you have that realization, you can never go back and, and, and live that normal life. And, um, and so you know that you're called to do something to, to end this, this, this atrocity. I, I think before I move on to the photography, I do have to ask just for the benefit of our listeners, because I know this, but they might not. What put you in jail for seven months again? Oh, <laughs> we did a, a rescue in June of 1989 at the Imperial Medical Services Abortion Clinic in Milwaukee. And I was, I, I, got, I got the book thrown at me. I really did. I, there was this very, very, very pro-abortion aggressive special prosecutor, Jeffrey Kremers. I, I talk about him, of course, in my book. And he, he slammed me with three criminal charges, um, and I got convicted on all three counts, and uh, the judge uh, actually gave me a nine-month jail sentence, um, and I, I served seven out of the nine months. Okay. Now, one of the things that I really wanted to discuss with you, because you're one of the few people um, who have actually come face-to-face -face many, many, many times with the abortion victims, and I've I have uh, on occasion twice um, seen actual abortion victims, and so I know that it, it's it's a life changing experience in a way that's hard to describe. Um, and you've taken thousands of of photographs of of aborted babies, so let's sort of start uh, at the beginning so people can can understand this. Where uh, did you begin dumpster diving, and when did you have the idea of retrieving? Uh, dead babies from dumpsters? Well, I have to say I never actually had the idea of doing it. It just sort of, if I could say I was in the right place at the right time. But I was a graduate student studying theology at Marquette in Milwaukee. Um, though I, of course, I had many contacts, many friends in Chicago and Milwaukee is not that far from Chicago. It's about an hour and a half drive north, uh, uh, so it's it's uh, it's um, 
not as if, you know, I was that far away, but uh, what happened is that Joe Scheidler and um, a guy that used to work for him, Andy Schulberg, uh, Joe came to Marquette University to give a speech. And after the speech was over, we went out to a uh, international house of pancakes uh, for coffee or whatever. And Andy Schulberg leaned over to me in the booth and he said, Monica, we found the mother load. And I thought, what, 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 what the heck is he talking about? Well, it turned out, um, we had found, we had found out that a, um, a pathology lab in Northbrook, Illinois, um, uh, somebody who worked at this pathology lab had called a, a fellow by the name of Conrad Wudgener. Conrad ran, Conrad, um, um, founded a string of pregnancy help centers in the Chicago, Chicago area. He got an anonymous phone call from this employee of the lab and he, she had told Conrad that there were fetuses out on the loading dock of the pathology lab in boxes. They were out for the trash pickup and apparently this, um, employee was having a, a pain of conscience. Um, so in any case, um, she, she or he uh, instructed uh, Conrad on how it is that, you know, you pro-lifers could do something. And so she instructed us on how we could actually a get access to the loading dock and, and, um, and, and, and get the bodies. Um, so that was in 1988, which I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute because I, I, I should jump back to the year of 1987. 1987, there was an abortion clinic in Chicago called the Michigan Avenue Medical Center, right on Michigan Avenue. And I, I did hours and hours of sidewalk counseling at this uh, uh, abortion center when I was uh, living in Chicago. And it turned out that we, well, make a long story short, we found out that the clinic was indeed dumping the aborted babies in the trash dumpster behind the clinic in the alley. So there's an alley off of Monroe Street that intersects with Michigan Avenue, and you go down into the alley, and there was a red-colored dumpster. And so this was in February of 1987 so we we uh trekked uh in the in the dead of night uh to that to that alley and opened up the dumpster and we we found the the uh, bags that contained these heavy uh boxes <clears throat> and uh, sure enough they were filled with aborted babies and so that was my uh shall I say, introduction to uh, retrieving the, the actual victims of abortion from, from the trash. And this, this retrieval uh, project uh, went on for about two, two and a half months from February until April 25th, because I, I remember that date of April 25th. It was the last day that we took a box of these aborted babies out of the trash. Um, I spent countless, countless hours photographing the the um the aborted babies um 
and this was when uh, back when you uh, had to use 35 millimeter film <laughs> right? and negatives and uh, my my friend uh, Edmund Miller who then eventually became my husband um he and I <laughs> taught ourselves by kind of trial and error if you will how to do this photography we had to rent the equipment we didn't own 35 millimeter cameras which even then cost cost you know hundreds of dollars right. plus the the lenses that had we had to have special lenses for close up um because some of these these babies were very very tiny um they ranged uh, the gestational ages range from 6 weeks to uh 6 months and um and again I do talk about uh, this in my in my book um abandoned the untold story of the abortion wars then there then then we had to of course arrange for the burials for these aborted babies and and um then I couldn't believe it, but you know, 1988, basically one year later, I, I I thought we're done. You know, this is like a one-time thing, right, Jonathan? I mean, how often are you going to find uh, aborted babies in trash dumpsters? But yeah, right. uh, there it was. A year later, we we're at the loading dock at at the uh, pathology lab in Northbrook, Illinois. Uh, the lab was called Vital Med, and the uh that the retrievals of those uh, aborted babies took uh about 10 months from from February of 1988 through the month of uh late well, late October of 1988 and i i have to tell you um as as hard as this is going to sound to the uh to the um you know the listeners of this uh, program um we were living with the dead. We we had boxes and boxes and boxes of aborted babies. We we had so many. We had to find host homes. We had to find other places because I I I had a spare bedroom filled with boxes uh, of, of aborted babies. At at the end of the by the, t- the time we were finished with the retrieval, we had uh, five thousand um, bodies. And I, I felt like I basically I not only living with the dead, but um, then planning these burials for 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 these babies was like being in the you know uh, in the funeral business. Um, and we one of the things that we did we we knew exactly where these aborted babies were coming from, and and what what is the reason for that? How do we know the boxes on the loading dock? were these 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 aborted babies literally were shipped in in parcel post from the abortion clinics where they were aborted to the vital med pathology lab right so the return labels were on the boxes so they were coming from places like the Raleigh Women's Health Organization the um the um Fair, we abortion clinics from all over the place, Fairfield, New Jersey, Fargo, North Dakota, uh, Wilmington, Delaware, uh, Chicago. Uh, there was one from Milwaukee, ironically, a, a clinic where we did a lot of sidewalk counseling, uh, the Metropolitan Medical Services. Um, 
so all these abortion clinics were shipping the the victims <clears throat> to Vitalmed. And I think all all Vitalmed was doing was was simply opening up the boxes and then dumping the boxes on the on the loading dock. There's no way. There is absolutely no way that that pathology pathology lab was doing any examination because I, I, there was absolutely impossible. They would they would have done nothing else because we were, we're talking thousands of aborted babies and we didn't get all of them. Um, I, we, if we got half of what, not even half uh, of what was there over that 10-month period. But we made a decision since we knew where the babies were coming from, uh, we would contact the pro-lifers, like, for, for example, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, and we contacted the pro-lifers in, in, in those various uh, uh, cities and gave them back the, the bodies, and then they conducted. So, they, so that caused a multiplication of grave sites um, all over the United States as, as a consequence of that. Um, so that, and again, the photography that that we that we um, we conducted, you know, people want to see, you know, what 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 the you know the photos which are available, uh, you know, we don't we don't even charge any anything for these photos. Uh, uh, they're at uh, imagesofabortion.com. <clears throat> so images of abortion, all one word, imagesofabortion.com. I think we've got like six galleries. Of of uh, uh, the uh, the uh, the photographs from the various um, uh, places, you know, and in times when we did the retrieval. So you realize that when uh, when there's a lot of people who will be listening to this who are not you know full time pro life activists who have never seen an aborted baby and, and probably never will in their entire lives, and this this sounds kind of nuts. Um, especially considering some of the experiences that, that you've gone through, uh, you know, retrieving the babies, burying the babies. Could you uh, so to sort of describe what your reaction to seeing these actual humans was, not on a philosophical level, but on how did it impact you personally to, to handle these, these tiny children? Because this is, a, this is a very rare experience. It's an extraordinary experience. It's one that's specific uh, to to our age when we do this um, to children in our countries, what was that like? Well, I have to say it's one of the saddest things I've ever done, and probably ever will will do in in my life. Um, and the images stay with you um, all the time. I. The, the, I don't know, it's hard, it's hard to say because you're looking at something you're not allowed to look at. You're looking at something that the human eye is not meant to look at. Right. Um, in some ways, I felt that the broken bodies, you know, the broken bodies of the, of the, uh, the victims of abortion was, it was a, um, a real time metaphor. For uh, the, the the broken culture that we live in, I mean it. I mean, there's a for example, there's how shall I describe this? But everything is out of order, and what should be in place is is out of place. So, for example, there's a 
photo, um, and it, it, it should be a, a, in the gallery, one of the galleries of the uh, images of abortion.com. There's a photo we, I took of a foot of a 14-week um, aborted baby that was aborted at the Raleigh Women's Health Organization. And if you look at the photo, you'll see that there's something wrapped around the foot of the baby. What is that? It's it's the intestines. So the, a part of the intestine got wrapped around the, the leg, the ankle of this aborted baby. And I, you know, so right there, you, you know, you see that everything is out of place. Yeah. Everything is not where it's supposed to be. And so the, 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 the desecration of the human body that, that, that happens in abortion it just is a, is a sign. It's a, a symbol, symbolizes the whole disjointedness of culture, um, of the darkness that causes that kind of, uh, literally chaos, um, confusion, uh, that, that is, um, I use the word kind of, you know, incarnated into the, into the, um, the broken bodies of the, of the victims of abortion. You never can get it out of your mind. I mean, for example, I'll see a, a hand of a little baby, um, you, you know, uh, maybe a, a one-year-old or a, or a toddler, and it'll be, it'll be cocked. Uh, it'll be, it'll be positioned in a certain way, and it just reminds me of how uh, one of the babies that we, that we took out of the trash. Um, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I, uh, you carry the, you carry the, these babies with you wherever you go, really. Uh, once, once you, once you've encountered them and they become part of your life, your life. And, um, so, uh, I, and I, here's the other thing that has always greatly, greatly perplexed me. Um, back in 2008, we found, um, the remains of aborted babies in a trash dumpster here in Michigan. Right. Um, at the, and you were, you, you know, you've been at the grave for the Hodari babies, as I have, we call yes. them. Um, so those, those babies are buried at Holy Sepulchre Cemetery in, um, Southfield, Michigan. So in 2008, uh, we retrieved um, aborted babies from the trash dumpster behind the women, woman care abortion clinic in Lathrop Village, Michigan. Uh, happily, the clinic is now closed. Um, but in any case, some of the some of the um, babies were really pretty big. I mean, they were 19, 20 weeks gestation. Of course, they were doing abortions there through the 24th week of pregnancy, um, which very ridiculous how it is in Michigan that abortion on demand through the 24th week, a six, six months, perfectly healthy babies. Um, and I, you know, I thought to myself, you know, as we're, we're looking at these feet, the feet and the hands of the babies that were getting out of the trash. And I thought, you know, the, the abortionist, Alberto Hodari, 
he saw, he sees exactly what we're looking at. These are these were di- dilation and evacuation abortions. Right. He has to remove these these arms and legs and and spinal columns and ribs and whatever out of the womb, and he sees exactly what I see, and I see exactly what he sees. But why do we see it differently? <laughs> right? When I see that foot, uh, you know, a half an inch or three quarters of an inch long, I see a human being, right? right I see a right. human foot. That that was the foot of a of a somebody. Uh, what does he see, right? He sees trash. I don't understand that complete disconnection to the reality of the unborn child. I don't. I, I, it's something. Jonathan, I just can't penetrate that darkness. I don't understand it, but it's but but it's there. It's the mystery of evil, I guess, that I can't go. I can't penetrate that. How is it that I see a human being and he sees a piece of trash, literally in throw it away in a dumpster? And you put the baby. You and I believe you and Joe Scheider did this together. Did you not at one point take um, the babies that had been aborted in a clinic? And, and and lay them out in front of the clinic to show people what was truly going on. You described this at one point. And what was the reaction to the people who were walking past, seeing the literal physical result of what was taking place in that building? Right. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, the, the babies that we that we retrieved and that were about, you know, in that two to three month period, in 1987, so the Michigan Avenue Medical Center, the building that housed the abortion clinic was right on Michigan Avenue. You, if you you know if you're familiar with Chicago, you, if you if you if you looked down the street like half a block, you could see the entrance to the uh, famous Art Institute of Chicago, and we and this was like almost directly across the street from Grant Park, a you know well-known uh, park in downtown Chicago. And there's a very wide sidewalk uh, in front of the building. The clinic was up on the sixth floor. And Joe had the incredible idea of doing an on-the-street press conference that these babies were found in the trash behind the clinic. So we had, we had uh, some of the bodies actually displayed on tables on the sidewalk. And, you know, this is a very crowded sidewalk. People coming and going, you know, uh, uh, people walking to wherever they're, you know, going to work or going to lunch or whatever it is they're doing. And people would come up and they 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 were, this, this, I, I watched, and literally, Jonathan, I watched with my own eyes the awakening of souls. I, people would come up, they would look at these bodies, and I remember a, a couple of African-American women coming up, looking, and saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, those are real babies, those are babies. I, it was like, it was, like, like I, I was, it, was a, it was a completely privileged moment for me to, to meet, for me to see that. Um, there, there, and here's the, here's, and here's why, Here's what I think what was what, what was so special about this this episode 
is when we had those babies displayed in the, and it was a, it was a, a warm day. It was like, I think May 6th of, of 1987. Um, it was a very warm day. It was bright sun. And why do, why, why were we getting the, what, the, what I would of course say is the proper reaction to the injustice of abortion? And here's, here's why. These people that were coming down the sidewalk, going to and fro in front of the display of these uh, abortion victims, they had no prior preparation. So in other words, they, they couldn't psychologically um, protect themselves right. with some sort of um, ideology about abortion. Um, they weren't, you know, they were confronted in a, in a, without, without any preparation, uh, so that they couldn't rationalize abortion. You know, they, 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 they weren't coming and looking at the bodies of, um, you know, prepared for some sort of political protest where they could deny the truth, uh, rationalize uh, the situation. It was a pure reaction to the violence of abortion that, and 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 so then the re, the reaction uh, uh, emotionally and and maybe I could even say spiritually was pure. It was a pure reaction, and it it was it was um, it was incredible. It really was. So I guess we could talk for for hours about your book and 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 your history in the pro life movement because as you mentioned, you've been you've been doing pro life work since 1976. But we'll close off just by asking you uh, what you've been up to lately, because you've been embarking on a new project that uh, readers of LifeSite News will have heard of, because they've reported on 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 what you're up to extensively. Um, I've also uh, written and, and interviewed you on on what you've been up to. But yeah, I guess just give us a, a rundown of, of of your newest project that you've been engaging with, and and most importantly, just the briefly the core philosophy behind what that is. Right. Um... I've been involved in in uh, a, a pro life ministry called Re- the Red Rose Rescue, and you know some people uh, you know may may be familiar with the uh, rescue movement itself mm-hmm. that um, was very up and running uh, back in the um, 1980s and in the early 1990s, where people would um, gather literally uh, by the hundreds, if not the thousands. Uh, all over the United States and block the door, sit, sit-ins. I mean, you know, basically that's what we're doing in terms of the technical, um, you know, activity, but blocking the door to the clinic to prevent the abortions from taking place and so on. Well, and I was very involved with that as well, uh, um, but we we decided to, a, a group of us, to... Um, bring back the rescues, but we're doing them um, somewhat differently. We're actually going, it was a small team of four to six people. We will go into uh, the abortion center, sit down quietly uh, next to the moms that are scheduled for abortion, um, and talk to them in the waiting room of the abortion clinic. And these are these are women, maybe there were some sidewalk counselors, but these are women that didn't listen to the sidewalk counselors. They decided to go on in the clinic anyway. 
And literally, we're talking minutes away from these women walking down the, the, the hallway of death uh, to, the, uh, to the execution rooms uh, to uh, kill their unborn children. So this is our, really our last effort to reach out to these mothers and provide them with um, help, our, our encouragement, and get them to come out with us. Um, if they don't listen, we're going to stay because part of the Red Rose Rescue and a very, very important dimension of the rescue is to stay with the victims because these are abandoned children who have nobody, nobody to love them, nobody to defend them, nobody to stay with them. And so we will abide with them. We will throw ourselves into solidarity with the unwanted and st try to stay inside the abortion clinic for as long as we can. And we know from our experience, uh, Jonathan, that as long as we're there, sitting there, praying, maybe singing hymns, uh, talking to the staff, um, people that work at the clinic, as long as we're there, the abortions are not happening. <laughs> so we're, we're actually defending those babies by just being there with them for as long as we possibly can. So that's a very important uh, part of what we do. And I help people try to understand the, 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 the spirituality uh, behind it by um, referring to something that Mother Teresa, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, said that characterized her work uh, in India was to go, actually go to the dark holes of the poor. Go to the dark holes of the poor. Not, not that the poor are going to come to you, but you're going to go to them. And you're going to be with them in the dark place where they are living, um, the darkness that they are experiencing. And that's what we're trying to do in a Red Rose Rescue. And literally, we will take roses into the clinic. We will pass them out, uh, give them to the staff, um, give them to the police if they'll take the roses. And we have had some successes. Women, women have left. Uh, the clinics, uh, some of them actually during the, the Red Rose rescues, uh, even before the police get there. Um, so we know that at least those babies were not murdered that day. We hope that the moms didn't come back, but, but we, we, we do have experience that, um, the Red Rose rescues have stopped the killing, uh, of the unborn for, for those women that, that got up and decided to leave. And the boyfriends, sometimes boyfriends were with them and they, and they left. Um, I did a short jail term last summer because of one of the rescues, one of the Red Roads rescues that we did here in in Michigan. Um, which, by the way, I should tell, I should say, we know that that rescue stopped on that very day of the rescue, which was December second uh, of 2017. Uh, we know that it stopped at least 12 abortions. And how do we know that? Because the clinic director testified with a chart okay. that 12 women left the clinic <laughs> when the rescue and not left the clinic, but didn't show up, didn't come but during, during, and she says, it's never happened in the history, the 30 year history of this abortion center where 50% of our clients did not get their abortions. So that, that was a huge victory. We, I, mean, I couldn't believe she was actually testifying 
um, that you know because basically she was she was giving us encouragement by saying look how look how successful they were. But if people want to um, know more about Red Rose Rescue, we have a Facebook page. So you just Google Red Rose Rescue Facebook. It'll take you to the Facebook page. There's lots of articles and links and photographs that are up there. Um, and also, people should. I, I'd like to direct people to my website, which also has um, a, an archive for Red Rose Rescues um, on the on the left sidebar, and that is uh, ProLifeSociety.com. No hyphens. It's all one word. ProLifeSociety. Dot com, and also you know, since we were talking at great length about the uh, the aborted babies that we took from the trash and so on, I'd like to direct people to a YouTube uh, video if I if I can, Jonathan. For sure. Uh, one of them is called "Aborted Babies on TV." So just Google that when you get to YouTube. Put that in the search box: "Aborted Babies on TV." And that'll bring up a, a, a video, indeed, of a, of a TV show we did uh, in Milwaukee, uh, and the aborted babies were were uh, were displayed uh, in this interview that we did. Also, our our video requiem for the disappeared. So again, you, you can just put that in the YouTube search box: requiem for the disappeared. And it is a four-minute music. I, I want to characterize it as a kind of music video, but it's about the burials that we did for the for the uh, aborted babies that we found in Michigan. Well, Doctor Miller, thank you so much for taking uh, the time to come on and talk about your work with us. Thank you, Jonathan, and God bless you, ladies and gentlemen. That was my conversation with Doctor Monica Miller. She is a director of Citizens for a Pro-Life Society, and we hope that you'll check out other uh, interviews on LifeSiteNews.com. You can head over there and you can read coverage of day-to-day events, things that are taking place in the culture wars. You can check out our previous interviews and subscribe to them. We hope you'll go to LifeSiteNews.com, check out more of the coverage there, and we hope you'll join us again next week.